Every joke is a tiny revolution, said George Orwell, and each week comedian Tiff Stevenson interviews fellow comics such as Nish Kumar and Sarah Pascoe about the power of comedy to disrupt. Imagine a custard pie splatting into a human face forever. Find Tiny Revolutions wherever you find podcasts and at lushplayer.com. Hello and welcome to John Rod Tapes. In this week's episode, I speak to Stuart Lee, the legendary comedian who talks about the art of comedy and his deep love of alternative music. When I started doing little comedy gigs in the late 80s, they were before the alter, before comedy was a thing and people weren't playing stadiums. They were in run-down little pubs in the docks of Cardiff, Bristol. Then uh, then in the mid-90s you were sort of promoted up to some other place like in town but now you go back to where the shit part of town was where the rundown club was but that area has now been made into the waterside living part yeah. of the town and there's some really swanky art centre there yeah. like here in Salford or Bristol Docks Cardiff Docks I mean that Cardiff Bay now where the Millennium Centre is that used to be a little pub with a long thin stage where you did stand up so it's funny doing it long enough to see the shape of the shape of what happens where in cities change because now the bits that were abandoned are the bits that have been colonized for expensive luxury living or mm. shopping centers or places like media city here I mean, areas like that do they, do they have that spirit still is this, is this something that's it's, it's obviously it's an intangible concept yeah. but you know can you put layers and layers of concrete on something does it disappear or is it still well i don't know i mean i mean in london I mean, Ian Sinclair's the person who's written a lot about that, isn't he? He thinks the place sort of is, stays there and you, you build on it, even though the, uh, the sort of markers have gone. I mean, a person I read a lot of is uh, Arthur Macken, the Welsh writer who, from the 19th century, early 20th century, got this sort of thing going. And in fact, I just did an introduction for his autobiography, which is available from Tartarus. But, <laughs> but um, he, he sort of is thought to have coined that idea that sort of became what they call psychogeography, and he wrote a lot about how, <clears throat> where he grew up, Caerleon, Newport, South Wales, he was very aware of the Roman city sort of underneath it, and then when he came to London uh, to try and make it as a writer, he wrote a lot, he wrote a novel, Hill of Dreams, about how he's sort of tormented by the idea that all the different periods of history are sort of coming at him through the place. It's a funny thing being a, being a I mean, you, you probably find this in dressing rooms of places, I often find myself thinking about the history of it, Particularly, the more I think about musical comics, right, which I've got really fascinated by the idea that the last time there was a comedy boom, like there is now, was the, 19, you know, the turn of the end of the 19th century when there were, every town had lots of acts touring and staying. So I was sitting backstage in Wolverhampton Grand, which is a lovely old Victorian Frank Matcham theatre, and I thought, I wonder what co comedians have sat in here. Mm in the 19th century and I sort of was looking online for old bills and I found that, um, you know, I, f I found sort of the people that had been there and thought about where they'd come from. Now the one guy, I forget his name now, he was known as the Duke of Solihull, which I thought was weird because that was where I grew up and the joke was that Solihull was so naff, the idea that you were a Duke of Solihull was <laughs> hilarious because it was just a sort of, uh, the Duke of Solihull and I found that the guy used to do an act where he had a marmoset on a lead, but he was gay and he'd sort of been tormented out of work. 
and he ended up in South End. He died in South End in the 30s, wandering around the pubs, the Duke of Solihull, with a, like a rat or something on a lead, because he hadn't got a marmoset anymore, <laughs> trying to remind people that he'd been this guy. Fred Barnes, that was his name. Yeah. He had a song, The Black Sheep of the Family, which was about being gay, but you weren't mm. allowed to say that, and everyone laughed and got it. I thought of him. Oh, he had a chicken, that's right. He ended up with a chicken on a lead going around pubs. And I was so sad to be sitting there where the Duke of Solihull had sat and no one knew. And I, then I started looking online in that very dressing room and I found a signed photo of him from like 1910 for mm. 20 quid on eBay or something. And I bought it because I thought I wanted him to know <laughs> that someone had <laughs> thought about him, you know. So it's funny being part of a tradition going mm. around. Know, yeah, you know. and they're both kind of parallel, aren't they? This idea of being the tradition of comics and yeah. the tradition of the place you're in. Yeah. And do you feel that they kind of they parallel each other? Do you, do you kind of get that feeling? You know, that idea yeah. of being interested in 19th century comics. Yeah. Is this the way your mind works, unpeeling the layers? Yeah, well, I mean, when alternative comedy started, and I was lucky enough to start doing it in the late 80s, so I was on bills with a lot of the end of the first wave of people. No one knew that people were going to end up playing rooms like here at Lowry um, and, and it was iconoclastic and it was explicitly critical of what it saw of the comedy before both the Oxbridge stuff and the working men's club racist stuff was all <laughs> lumped together and um, and then but now increasingly I think I think I've invented something <clears throat> and then I find out there's a Max Miller routine that's the same from 1920 oh, really? yeah so in fact, there's a bit in this that's really so, so what parallels would you have? Well, so I don't feel, I feel now, now I sort of think, all right, what's the, what's the thing that connects you back through time? And what did they do that was the same as you? Mm. Rather than thinking it was a slash and burn thing. Mm. And it, it's funny, isn't it, again, with, with sort of punk rock, you end, you end up thinking, oh, it's not, it's sort of, there's a lot more in late 70s punk that's connected to prog or psychedelia than mm. people were aware of at the time. So it does feel part of a, mm. of a continuum. Even that, those, these, Th things that are supposed to shatter things feel feel part of a thing. Well, the, the musical comics is fascinating to me because you can go, I try and find their graves around the country as well. Oh, um, really? Yeah. For, um, for any particular reason? I mean, obviously, like well, a historical interest. Well, just because interest. I sort of think, it's, um, it's nice to think someone's, I don't know, the, what's sad about them is there's recordings of the songs, but you know how it worked was they'd have a song and then the middle eight was where they'd do all their... Oh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so would they improvise a lot? Yeah, 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 yeah. and do like stuff about it. And obviously none of that survived. You've only got, so you have this kind of sense. You can see a photo of them, and you've got the song, and then somewhere in the middle eight, which would have been vamped on as long as they liked, would have been where they mm. did their bit, and that's really tantalisingly not there. In fact, funnily enough, the other night, I was in, a, they put us up in the hotel here at Salford Keys, and a lot of telly people staying there, because they're, and uh, that choir bloke was in, Gareth, um, you know, the choir. Yeah, yeah. The bloke who does the choir programme. And I knew the woman he was with, the makeup woman, used to work for us. And she went, this is Gareth. And I went, oh, God, I said, I just, your great-great-grandfather was Edmund Payne, wasn't he, the musical comedian? And he went, yeah. And I went, oh, yeah, I've just, I've been photographing his grave in... Um, Anthony Parks, I thought, this sounds really weird now, right? I'm sort of obsessed. <laughs> Did he get a locker at that point? Yeah, no, yeah. And then he went, oh, Stalker. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And, then, and uh, I went, yeah, I've got a photo of him I got on the internet of uh, him on a bike with two little kids. Mm. And he went, oh, that's my uncle's son, sort of. Wow. Right, yeah, so um, 
It's all around, you know, it's all around you. Does it actually get more fascinating if you can't even hear or read yeah. the people's routines? Yeah. And you just, you look at these kind of failure pictures trying to imagine. Well, you've made like. me think of something now, which is like we grew up in a time when there were unknowable things, and there'd be a record you wanted to hear and it was mm. gone. There'd be a film you wanted to see and it was gone. Or if you saw it, you saw it once and there was no DVDs and you tried to sort of remember it. And my kid, he's 10 and he loves Doctor Who. He's fascinated by the ones that they have lost because he's grown up in a time where he can see everything, right? So, and I wonder if it is with me, you've made me think that it's actually I'm getting to the fringes of the collector obscurist <laughs> mentality. I'm trying to find out about some comedy which you literally will never be able to know what it was. So I'm trying to sort of work it out. But it does make you think about places and those acts had a real sense of the regions they were from and um, how that, you know... Was, was, was comedy very regional then? I mean, I know about the Northern well, comedians. Yeah, there were two, so, there were different circuits yeah. run by different different companies, you know, which actually is not unlike comedy now, where there's two or three big production companies that control um, what gets on telly and they've all got their own... But you can go around the country, can't you? Me, I mean, yeah. You've got relatively the same kind of audience. Yeah, every, right, yeah. everywhere, everywhere's pretty much the same, except... Glasgow and Newcastle, I think, audiences heckle, but they are really funny, right? Mm. So you, you, you have to basically roll over and take it. You can't be high status with them because they're going to get you in the end. Mm. So you have to kind of let it happen and give them the floor until they've sort of spent themselves and then hopefully you can kind of turn it back. And actually you can make the night better if you, if you play dumb and go, oh, I don't understand what you mean. You can sort of get mm. them... I gave up on Carlisle a few years ago. I don't know what happened. All of us have. My wife has given up on Norwich. I don't know why. Sometimes you just get a place, no matter how many times you, you go back. Yeah. You probably had the same. Yeah, yeah. You just, in the end, you go, what is, something's not happening there. So, that, and other than that, most places are the same now, more than they were even 30 years ago when I started, because people have got all sorts of frames of reference, you know, now that it's, they're not necessarily defined by... But even though obviously it's going to make it easier if yeah. you're successful to yeah. do that, and it's great, but do you find a slight disappointment in that? You know, this yeah. almost a Starbucks-ization of the audience. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going back to what we started talking about, this idea yeah. of spirit of place maybe yeah. getting blurred a bit more. There don't seem to be the distinctions that there were even mm. 30 years ago, where you could really, you'd have to sort of really think about what's this town into, and they won't have... Also, trying to, trying to do what was alternative comedy 30 years ago. A lot of places, you were going to places where it had never happened. They'd never seen anything like it. And, um, you know, I mean, in the 80s, one of the reasons I left Birmingham was because there was no comedy there and I wanted to do stand-up, so I had to go to London. There was about two gigs in Manchester. One opened in Birmingham just after I'd left. Frank Skinner ran it with a bloke called Malcolm Bailey in about 87, 88. There might be... So you used to see people opening for bands. That's where I saw mm. all the first comics I saw, opening for bands. Saw. So you had, you had to go and, and um, going to places for the first time where, and being the first time they'd seen that sort of comedy was interesting. And then, but yeah, I mean, now there is a sort of homogenization. There isn't, I mean, there used to be acts, didn't there, that were, were massive regionally. You used to get it in music as well. Mm. Like, in, in Newcastle, still, Lindisfarne are like, it's, the, it's like they're the Beatles, mm. you know. No one's heard of them in Manchester. You know, but it's, like the whole December of gigs, yeah, didn't they? Yeah. Christmas gigs, which yeah. don't obviously because they're too old to do anymore, yeah. but the time, remember that? Do you yeah. know, and then they? off the border, like, they have these weird aberrations in Scotland, like Runrig, are like mm. the U2 of Scotland, and no one's heard of them mm. south of the border. So, you know, and we used to get it with comics as well. Even, even sort of on our circuit, there was a period where Frank Skinner was just huge in, in the Midlands, and... Uh, 
and when wasn't known anywhere else. And so, you know, he did get that. And actually in comedy, every... We like to think that comedy started in 1979, you know, <laughs> but there was a thing where there were people doing what we'd recognise as sort of stand-up in the 70s and 60s, but a lot of them were folk singers doing... Like Billy Connolly. Billy or... Connolly, Mike Harding, mm -hmm. Jake Thackeray, uh, you know, Max Boyce. They all had, like, bits, and the bits see, got longer than the... Than do you the, see them as, like, relatives? To yeah, some, absolutely, the folk yeah. comedians, yeah. Yeah. But they all were locked into a region, you know, and um, could be massive in that region or were about being from that... From this, that region. I mean, this monologue idea, is this yeah. extension, as you say, to the music hall, or was it kind of amplified by people like Lenny Bruce and people like that? Well, it's a different thing. I mean, it sort of, it sort of went missing in this country, you know. Lenny Bruce is, is, came out of a nightclub thing. It's a sort of... There seems to be another odd survival of regional identity in comedy that I'm trying to get to the bottom of, which is... You know, all these folk labels from the 60s that have gone... disappeared, like Trailer and... And you know, broadsword. These, you know, I think that's what one of them's called. You find these records, and they're called something like a Black Country Night Out, a Geordie Night Out. Yeah. yeah. And there'll be like a little trio singing folk songs. If it's Newcastle, it'll be about coal, and if it's Birmingham, yeah. it'll be about tripe or faggots <laughs> yeah. or something. You know. And then they'll, then then there'll be some p person doing a fifteen-minute monologue about that town. Mm. You know, in the really super dense accent that you don't hear anymore. The Birmingham one's called, it's called Dolly something, and it's, it's like a ghost is talking to you about... Mm. Fascinating. What, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. I'll tell you also like that, which is interesting, is um, Tom O'Connor, who our generation, you think, oh, it's this bloke that presented NAF quiz shows, and then... Uh, but in the sort of late 60s, early 70s, he was doing these sort of... His nightclub act was this monologue in a, about growing up in Liverpool mm. in the 40s, Funny. 50s, and it was really... Different to, mm. it wasn't like a Bernard Manning sort of thing. It was like a kind of slightly poetic, overwritten ev evocation of a place. You well, know, Bernard Manning was a very Manchester comedian. Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, obviously he's controversial. Yeah, but he's also quite. It could, it could be very funny as well. Yeah, but he didn't yeah. do. He didn't do. He did jokes. I mean, he didn't have like mm. oh, monologues, sort of things yeah. that you didn't really know any more about him at the end of the night. Yeah, he just yeah. Had some things that you could get, take away. I think. I mean, is it, was this a tradition in comedy to make it very personal? Or is this something that's kind of, the last few years, it's kind of well, accelerated? Well, I think um, that there was always different ways of doing it. Like, you could write a, a joke's not necessarily attached to the person. Mm. But a story has to be informed by the, you know, it, it's, are you writing jokes that people can take away and anyone can tell? Or is the material, does it only work if it's tied in with the persona of who you are? And that's what I try to do, and a lot of the people like the best do that. But that's not to say that, Someone like Tim Vine doesn't. I mean, I couldn't do that. I couldn't write a hundred amazing ten-second jokes. I remember them all. Or remember them all. <laughs> yeah, you I've got enough space hands. on my hands. You know. <laughs> but that was another thing actually about the place. When I started out on the circuit, I had a much more pronounced Midlands accent, and I fought it off because I because I didn't want to have to be a regional act. And, it, and there was a sort of thing then down south where. If they got a white male Geordie, a white male Brummie, a white male Scottish bloke on a bill, that counted as diversity. Because <laughs> <laughs> they had like, because if they would do stuff that was about the perception of that area, you know, mm. a Liverpool bloke would talk about propping your car up on bricks and nicking it, and the Geordie app would always do something about only going out in a vest mm. and in kind winter. Of, kind of 
doing the London jokes. Yeah. Pretend yeah. to piss out their yeah, own cultures yeah. for the benefit for of London. Benefit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uncle Tom's they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sellouts. But yeah. so I, I thought if I if I I tried to flatten my acts now because I didn't want to have to I just wanted to be neutral, you know, I didn't mm. want to have to be from a place. But I find I use it a lot more now because I as I get older I write a lot of things that are more about memories of childhood and then I find unconsciously I slip into that accent because that's the accent that that was around me when I was mm. Or, if, or I find it useful to slip into my, into the voices of my grandparents, really, where they would be talking about things because they have as much smaller vocabulary. So you end up having to use repetition and texture rather than long words because mm. you you're trying to describe things through the brain of these people. And you know, I, I noticed you doing that the other night. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, I've, I'll do it self-consciously now, but I had to, was doing it without really being aware of it. That I'd find, I first noticed it. I was did this long bit about. About ten years ago, it was a bit of a breakthrough bit for me. Where I'd, I'd been in Cambridge, I'd been in Cambridge doing a gig, and I was in this lovely old square in Cambridge of all medieval colleges and stuff. But there was the back of a modern shopping centre, and at the back of the modern shopping centre were some white kids in sort of hip hop clothes, streetwear sort of stuff, doing skateboarding over these um, <laughs> over these sort of ramps that were for wheelchairs and things. And like I was sort of looking at it and. I was sort of thinking, why Gran wouldn't even know what she was seeing, right? She wouldn't <laughs> yeah, understand yeah. what music they were listening to, what they were wearing, what things they were on. She probably wouldn't even understood what the shopping centre was or what yeah. these ramps were for. And I found myself, I did this thing of talking about rappers by the shopping centre jumping over the wall and stuff like that. And I kind of went on for ages and ages and ages because I, I knew that the more she talked about it, she'd never have got to the bottom of it. Mm. And I found myself doing that in this in this voice, so that it would only really work for me of thinking of a person from post-war Birmingham, seeing that now and trying to understand what it was and they just wouldn't. So. Well, in, in a sense, being a character. I yeah, guess. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of being a character without going, I'm now going to be my grand. You're different name. I just sort yeah. of do it a lot. And I think audiences get the idea that you're sort of speaking in tongues almost, channeling mm. these sorts of things. You don't have to say, mm. I'm now doing this. They recognise a sort of shift of focus. So in that way, there still is lots of disparate identities in the country because they know when you've, mm. when you've shifted one. It's probably more subtle now. Yeah. Because things seem very similar, but actually yeah. quite different, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I'm sort of exactly... My, my wife gets annoyed when I say this, but I sort of... I think culturally I'm sort of exactly lower middle class and there's no movement either way. And, it, and so it's kind of like a really neutral middle thing, I think, where you can mm. go upwards and all you can complain about everyone around you. Samuel Johnson was like that. And I'm not saying I'm the same as him, but he wrote the dictionary in Litchfield in the middle of the country. He didn't like the language of women. He didn't like the language of the poor. He didn't like the language of the South or of Scotland or of the rich. He basically thought everyone should speak like a middle-aged man from Litchfield. And he kind of, he left out loads of words that he felt weren't, you know, it was quite funny. Oh, Bill Ivan eclectic folk songs, yeah. but wouldn't put the rude ones yeah, in. Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting, yeah, yeah. You and McCall. Yeah, we're trying yeah. to create a misrepresentative, but uh, sort of inspirational body of work that didn't really mm. do the job, yeah. Yeah, like museum culture is yeah. also danger. Yeah. I guess that kind of ties back into that, you know, the spirit of a town as well, yeah. is it? I mean, how much of an idea of a town can you get or how much you kind of self-edited to fit your perception of it? Well, okay, what I used to do was it, a, a sort of hack trick for stand-up would be on the way there, you know, read a book about it, find out some things so you can sort of drop stuff in. And now, 
I, I, I sort of know enough about most places now to be able to do that if I want to, where people are really astonished that you <laughs> know things. But sometimes you misjudge it. I was in, um, in Derby the other day and uh, I, I found myself on stage remembering that, I've forgotten it now, the, the name of the bloke who invented some wool manufacturing process that's a big deal oh God, I in Derby. Ebenezer or Obadiah. Yeah, He's got yeah, a really ridiculous to him, isn't it? Yeah, name. Yeah. And he, yeah. There's statues of him all around town. And I started going on about him for ages. <laughs> like a minority of the audience were really <laughs> laughing. That Jebediah Strutt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whatever ridiculous. Like such Fantastic a name. Really. Don't get a laugh on his own. Yeah, I know, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, you know, I was going, it's like something, you know, it's like something Jebediah Strutt would have said. I'd do something, then there's... Then, then, then what I did was, some of you are laughing, the problem is I know more about Derby than loads of you people do, so I've misjudged it, but it is useful to know those mm. things. But then I also have to remember now that it's really good to know about the place, but I have to sort of understand the perception of me, which I've chosen to go with, to roll with it rather than fight it, is of a sort of out-of-touch member of the metropolitan liberal elite, right? So you kind of, you sort of wouldn't really know what that town mm. was. Mm. You know, you wouldn't really know about it. Initially, you can't go out and be all friendly about the town because he would think it was sort of beneath. You shouldn't even have to know what Doncaster is. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's not so, but then if you keep it up your sleeve and bring mm. it out, people do like so it. It's like a, jo a joke within a joke. Yeah. yeah, but it's actually been an incredible privilege, I think, for 30 years. I had five years off when I couldn't make things work, but pretty much every year I've gone, I've gone around the country and you, and, you know, you see, you can see the way the politics is going. You can understand Brexit and things like that a lot more if you've travelled round. I, I like going back to the same places every year. And um, especially now, you get to know the people at the theatres. And I, But I, what I do miss is, is the first... I mean, the first one I went to York, 1990, is one of the first gigs I had out of London, a long way off on my own. And there was an amazing record shop and above a pl you know, place with all 60s psychedelic stuff in. You'd go to the independent comic shop and you'd go around the second-hand bookshops and mm. you'd think, oh, next time I'm there, I'll go to those again. Just, it, 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 gave, it gave you some focus. Or you'd go to the art galleries and the museums and obviously, over 30 years, lots of those of, um, you go back in the same places aren't there and the ones that are hanging in there, it's tough. Mm. I mean, for, for instance, before we went and started recording this, we are talking about Ithil Colhoun, the uh, artist, and I know there was a load of stuff of hers in Leicester Gallery, but it's sort of been sold by the council, you know. Things are sort of, you mm. feel everything, it's been sold by the council to probably to pay some basic service. Repair the pavements. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and um, so you, you kind of feel, you don't feel a lot of the things that are what formed me, which was free public access to culture and second-hand book and record mm. shops, are all sort of going and they're being replaced by these... Um, you know, the sort of retail outlet experience places that an Ian Sinclair or a J.G. Ballard would be fascinated <laughs> by. And so I've lived through 30 years of that. And again, it goes back to the theme, the idea of the spirit of place, yeah. and the modernisation of culture. Yeah. And, and we did touch about this briefly before, but when you go to different cities, I mean, what was that book that someone wrote about London and they wrote it, like an autobiography of London? Like yeah, yeah. London was a person. Yeah, yeah. You know, like it was, it's a living organic entity. Yeah. And it's a fascinating idea. Mm. And when you go to other cities and towns, you feel they're sort of different, sort of. Yeah, in, but I don't know them as well. I mean, that's the mm. thing is, but the, the thing is, it's, I mean, again, right, what I found myself doing in the second and third series of Comedy Vehicle and a bit in the fourth, 
um, was I wrote a lot of routines which, okay, I stopped worrying about the fact that I was from London and was living in this one place. And instead I thought, what if you chose to sort of understand the world through the narrow compass of your existence? I know that sounds pretentious, but it's a bit like Defoe, who weirdly was from Stoke Newington, where I live, wrote Robinson Crusoe and thought you could understand economics and the world through one man's experience of trying to grow mm. enough food. Which is actually to, quite brilliant. Yeah, you know, yeah. so... So if you look in the second and third series, a lot of the things that extrapolate out to being about our attitudes to Islam or whatever are just about me having some incident on a bus in Hackney with one with a woman in a burqa or something, you know, and I thought I could, and, and uh, or about things that happen over some dispute about fencing mm. with the council. And, and I started to think, what if you just, a lot of the routines, instead of having a big perspective, I sort of crunched them down into very little localised things. I think what's useful about London in that way is that in a day in London, you're going to meet a Polish guy who's going to serve you in a, in a thing. You're going to have to, you're going to, you're going to sit next to someone in some kind of religious clothing. You don't even know what it's, <laughs> what religion it's from. You know, you're going to, you, you, you rub up against all these different things. Like where I live is right in the middle of the a very, very orthodox Hasidic Jewish community. Mm -hmm. So you see all sorts of, you see all different things about the world. And if you go to Weight Watchers in Hackney, which I did at once, it's hilarious. It's like sort of Benetton cavalcade <laughs> of different, like, people. Or like mind your language. Yeah, or like mind your language, <laughs> except they're all marginally overweight. So it's sort of, so I kind of think, I stopped feeling bad about it. And I thought, mm -hmm. you know what, I'll make myself into this character that lives in this, in this multicultural London of people all passing through and use that as a way of uh, examining the world. And I will do so from the position, from the position I don't necessarily believe, but I'll take the position that this is the best place to live because of this, you know, mm. and that was quite a good way of talking about other places as well. Personalising it makes sense, I think, in comedy, because everyone in yeah. the audience can kind of think, oh, I felt like that, yeah, or yeah. I didn't feel like yeah, that. So yeah. they're kind of with you, aren't they? Yeah, they're kind of Very personal. Yeah. Is that how it works? One yeah, it one? is. I mean, I, 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 again, I think, right, you know, you, you can you can either try to be an everyman figure, which a lot of people do. They do this kind of, oh, you know what it's like. You do this, or you can say it's all about you, but invite people to understand their experience through mm. you. But don't don't you don't really meet them halfway. Mm. And um, I've sort of decided to do that. And then, but then you do end up with these things that see people seem to feel are universal. And I, but you don't if you set out to do it, it can feel a bit contrived. This tour, weirdly, is. By, I, I sort of decided to do it. The telly had been cancelled. I knew I wanted to write something I could keep on the road for 18 months. I knew there were a lot more people than normal wanted to come because it had reached some sort of weird tipping point. And I also really wore myself out on the last one by doing a lot of very long, odd, intense routines that required me to not really laugh or move around or you know, for like half an hour of with all long silences in them. So I thought, I'll make this one quite good fun. It was more sort of inclusive and actually it, it, it worked out quite well because going around the country at the moment, you do feel like um, places are all different and you, you go to a different place and they're voted really differently to mm -hmm. each other. And so not, not necessarily reflected by the audience, but the area has. This, this tour can meet them, meet people more halfway. I think you have the luxury of doing black, dark comedy in reasonably settled times, actually. Mm. And what I felt... So it's going to be a challenge, because I, I don't yeah. feel like these times are going to be settled for very much longer. No, no. I mean, where, where, does, where does a socially aware comedian Well, I don't... Out? I mean, this yeah. is an interesting... This is a really interesting thing, and 
this is why when I get to the end of this, I'm hopefully going to keep this on. I'd, li I'd like to knock this on the head when I'm 50. At the moment, I've got a gig set up in the week I'm 50. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I'd quite like to finish there with this. That's in the spring of next year. And then I, then I need to stop for a year because I can't start writing the next show until we know what's happened with Europe, what's happened with Trump, what, what happens with this government. When, when, if and when the Conservatives get in, will they follow the more socially progressive agenda that Theresa May is playing lip service to, to try and neutralise Labour, or will they reset to normal? If you started working on it now, chances are it'd be irrelevant in six months. You couldn't do it because you can't tell what's happening. And also, you know, how does that affect me? Um, even though, um, you know, liberals weren't uh, in control, there was a liberal media, right? There was the Guardian, the Independent, the BBC News was fairly liberal and fair. Now, I think there's only really in the mainstream the Guardian and the Independent that are not to the right. A, a Momentum member would tell you that the Guardian was biased, you know, so... I don't know where you fit in, in the in the sort of deck of things now, and I need to work that out. And I think I need to take a year off. And also, I am now. I, in a year's time, I'll be someone who's fifty, who's got their own house in London, right? And it is not. It's I've tried to sort that out in my head, but you can't go around. You have to address that because. The next thing, if you say something about, oh, this isn't fair, then what you get from keyboard warriors on the right mm. is, yeah, well, you've got your own house and you don't, we won't understand. And it's mm. a legitimate, mm -hmm. uh, so you've got to find some yeah. way to work out, like, how do you carry on saying when you're not... Well, have you, you know, in a way, already addressed that, in a sense, by to, sort yeah. of laughing Make at the liberal metropolitan yeah. elite? Yeah, but hopefully, but hopefully not to, not to discredit its values, no, no, only to discredit, like, the... The stereotype of it, mm. really. Mm. Yeah. I mean, do you feel because of your background, you're from yeah. Birmingham, yeah. and and you're an orphan as well. Do you feel well, of, a, of a sort? Yeah, of but, but I was. But I mean, again, that sort of comes up. But to be to be adopted in the late sixties, mm. you were socially engineered into the exact middle of society. Mm. You know, now it would be different. But you were you were sort of you went through some charity. In, the, in my case, Church Fiend and Children's Society which tells you, it's not even called that, it's called the Children's Society now, but it was the Church of England Children's Society, mm. so it would have had a notion of values and it would have tried to place you in what it thought was, you know, an exactly normal mm. family. So actually, weirdly, being adopted in the late 60s on some level would have been a sort of privilege, because mm. the chances are you'd be bounced up a class. I'm just wondering if you not... felt that you didn't fit in, in a sense, you know. Like, you, you, you well, sound the way you're talking, you no, feel like... I do. But you, look, you talk yeah. about London Metropolitan Elite, which yeah. you are a member of, no, but, I, you, I, yeah, but you I, don't feel like you're a member yeah, at the same I, time. Well, the, whole, the whole thing is, I've never felt like I belong in anything. And if I was to psychoanalyse myself, it would be regionally, right, okay, regionally, I've grown up in a place. I know I was born somewhere else, and I'm from another place, right? Mm. So, what, what are you, you're not, you're not, you're not, your blood's not in the soil of that place. Mm. Um, I know that my, the family that adopted me were, you know, smack bang in the middle of that sort of post-war moving up the ladder sort of thing, you know. So my mum was a medical secretary, but she'd left school at 14 and her parents were factory workers. So that that's that, isn't it? You know, where you are exactly with that in 1970. And um, my, you know, genetic roots were from 
different ends of the social spectrum. And then um, I got a part scholarship for fluking an exam and then another bit of a part of scholarship because I was technically an orphan way from stray <laughs> to go to um, a minor public school in mm -hmm. Birmingham, which I loved and I, the teachers there were really great and I had loads of friends there. But it was only a few years ago, the other kid who was on the Waifs and Strays scholarship, um, who's now a lecturer in uh, Northampton, I met him on tour and he said, I meant to ask you, how on earth were you at that school? Because I went round where you lived, you couldn't have afforded that. <laughs> and I told him I got this thing that he didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And he went, oh right. And now I look back on it, yeah, it was, that was strange. But let's contextualise uh, this a little bit. It was Genesis Peorage. Genesis Peorage. Swell maps went there. Swell maps. Yeah. Maps maps and yeah. Uh, that was a liberal private education. Now, that, the basic problem you've got now is that those sorts of schools are still are still going to be creating the Genesis Peorages of the future <laughs> because the state schools can't afford to do painting, can they? Or mm. you know, if weird. So, but so that was weird. Then I, then I went to Oxford, which again I really really liked, but. Um, uh, and there was probably more social mobility there then than there is now, because mm. kids have to pay, and we know that the middle classes get very good at working the system. Once things are opened up, they close them down pretty quickly through the back door. But the, even there, you did think you could, you could, you'd have to be mad to go to a place like that and have a sense of in, that you were entitled to be there. Mm. I remember wandering around thinking, what the, what am I in this kind of? It was also it snowed a lot in the late mm. '80s, if you remember. So you'd be walking around this kind of. Film sets of <laughs> snowed yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty kind of, Disney, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, I kind of used to think, really, you know, and then. Um, so th that's so, another sense of this. Do you feel like a slight. I know a lot of people yeah. do feel like outside yeah. this, but. And do you think this is important for, for your kind I do, of I do, well? yeah. Because you, you always, can see all the flaws and yeah, stuff to look at. You always at. feel like you're, you're not in it. Mm. And, and, um, is, that, is that important? For well, it is, but to the point now where I think I slightly consciously sabotage myself like that. I mean, I sort of, there's, lo there's lots of reasons to do jokes about comedy and comedians and the TV industry and the media, because it's all ludicrous and mm. I do find it funny and it's something I know about. But on some level, I think you're also burning your bridges deliberately so that you can't be invited in. Because once you're in, you can't do those jokes. Mm. Like, well, that's interesting because we talk about that before, when we talk yeah. about the fall. Yeah. And like Mark Smith, famously, very yeah. awkward character. Yeah. But you were saying... It was given him a, a, a long life. Yeah, it's an idea. He's not in, he's not in a club. Like the Groucho yeah, Marx, he wouldn't yeah. be a member of the club, etc. Et yeah, yeah. Is that the same kind of thing? Same yeah, it is. And I think it's, it's awkward because... Um, it's awkward because, for example, I was in the Galway Comedy Festival a couple of years ago and I'd finished my gig in the Roisin dub. And um, so I'd finished and I thought, oh, I'll just go upstairs to the, get a drink, you know. It's Galway, so you've... The, the, the one-eighth of you that's Irish is having a having an undeserved freak-out, thinking, yeah. oh, I'm home, you know. Yeah. And you go, oh, go and get some Jamesons and Giz. And then there was, the bar was just full of comedians I'd done routines, taking the piss out of, and I just thought, oh, I have to go, I can't stay. <laughs> so I had to just go off on my it's own. It's a bit like the Wild West. Yeah, saloon. I just couldn't face it. Yeah. You know? and, um, what, do they, what do they think of you? Do they, they kind of go, well, um, we don't mind what he says? Well, or I don't it? know. I mean, I, I'm, um, I sometimes hear people are annoyed about things, and then I... Someone told me James Corden was annoyed about this routine I'd done about how I can't even remember exactly about how I didn't mind that I hadn't won a BAFTA, but I obviously did. And the more I talked about complaining that I hadn't won a BAFTA, the more obviously I did. And then it ended up with me complaining that James Corden had let Graham Norton accept the BAFTA when it should obviously have been me that won it. And if he likes me so much, James Corden, why didn't he fight 
Graham Norton and it ends up with me pretending to be James Corden spitting on Graham Norton or something. <laughs> and apparently he was upset about that. No, but I don't understand because to me that routine is a, it's basically an old Max Miller routine, right? About denial, right? There's a Max Miller routine from like 1910 or something mm -hmm. where he wants to borrow a plough off a guy. There's a recording of it, it's really funny. And he's thinking that the bloke won't lend him the plough because he had an argument with him five years ago. He's walking to get the plough and, um, and then he's going, uh, oh, you know, but he might not lend me it because he's stuck up. He's going, well, no, it'll be all right. Now he might not lend me it because his wife said this. And then he finally gets there and the bloke opens the door and he goes, you can keep your fucking plough, right? <laughs> he's talked himself out of it in his yeah, own. Yeah, yeah. And that BAFTA routine was like that. It was, yeah. like, it was the same thing. It wasn't even about James Corden or Graham Norton. It was about the perception of me as this sort of bitter person in denial. Mm. So it's, it's more about laughing at you yeah, than them. Yeah. Like and you kind of, most of the audience realise that. If you kind of mm. casually tune into it, you think I'm actually putting myself forward as this person with a legitimate grudge. But So I do mention lots for the people. I normally don't have any opinion about them, really. They're just sort of things that are in the world, you know. Mm. And um, There's a lot on the routine of the night, but about 10 people mentioned. About DVDs and everything. Well, yeah, just yeah. different comedians. Yeah, I did. I yeah. people, yeah. But there is a problem, which is this, right? Which is there's loads of, there's loads of comedians like me doing interesting things with narrative and structure, but like anything, the collective consciousness of the media has only got room for one example mm. of a mm. thing, right? And it's decided that, that they've got me for that. Mm. So they can go... Yes, I like Stuart Lee. He's the one I like. And then yeah. there's only... But there's loads of others it could have been, and I'm blocking that space up now. Mm -hmm. I'm clogging it up. You know, so in a way, I was quite glad the series was cancelled because I'd rather that you know, someone else, younger, was, was able to get that space to develop in the mm -hmm. way that I did, except they won't give it to them as a fluke. It'll be something no good. We'll get it. You're but, already famous before they could stop you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You've already got through. Yeah. So yeah. let's, you know, um, but uh, I, th I don't really know what the perception is now, um, and in fact, I've sort of lost track of so many people in the last ten years because one of the nice things about being a twenty and going on the alternative comedy circuit, and I expect the circuit you came up through is very similar was that you didn't have to have a social life because you were at these gigs mm. and you were on with other pa packages of two or three other acts and you'd get to know them and it was brilliant. In the late 80s, the circuit was so socially diverse. You'd be in a car going to some gig out of London somewhere and you'd be with, like, uh, well, the, you, know, you might be with the young Jimmy Carr, who at the time was head of marketing for Shell, <laughs> and with a bloke who had just come out of the army or something. Yeah. You know? And it was all like, and, and uh, a Muslim woman or something. Mm. You know, it was really sort of, Mixed up, it's more a narrower now because of economics and inevitably people whose parents can afford to buy them a flat are the people that move to a city now. Same but, in music. Same in music, yeah. but you know it, it was great like that, and I and I really so I didn't really worry about keeping up with it because I had all these sort of you had this network of acquaintances, and then I stopped doing the circuit sort of ten years ago every night because I was doing these kind of tours where you're off on your own. You lose track of your family because you can't go to weddings and christings because you're always working at weekends. And this tour has been good because um, it's got a set. I have to get places earlier in the day. 
So I've been trying to sort of do people, meet people again. I only did this to meet you, to have, <laughs> have, have a chat with someone. In the yeah. afternoon. So I'm trying to put my life just sitting in. Yeah, in so I'm trying to put my world. life back together so that in my fifties I've got some sort of, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it's yeah. sort of gone really. I don't really notice. It's just sort of disappeared. It's like music scenes, isn't it? When the bands, yeah, like the beginning. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's when it's yeah, that little competition thing, but mm. also the ideas are going around. It's yeah. When people start to make it, yeah, why don't you do this? Then it goes to vacuum, isn't it? Yeah, people yeah. lose touch with it, don't they? Yeah. yeah. And also there's a thing where you can't get round it, right? And I realise in retrospect I've been the same. I had a friend who did very well in the 90s and, you know, there's something awkward about it. You mm. can't, you can't... It's not jealousy, because you're pleased for them, but there's something, you know, if they offer to... Well, why don't you stay, have another drink? I'll pay for your cab home. You kind of, uh, you can't help but feel like you've been bought or... Mm, they're you know, owning you a bit. Yeah, and, yeah. and, um, and I, I am aware that without intending to, because I've done well now, I can become that person, you know, and so mm. it's, it's difficult for people. Or you can say something that you would have said to anyone at any point, but because you've said it and you're now this figure that's done four nights at the... It's, got, it's in capital letters. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and and um, but is this why you go on the merch? Yeah, and I know we all do it too, yeah. in the bands because we have to sell the merch. But well, well to diffuse that, mm. yeah, on some level because it, was, it seemed to be more than selling merch. It's just yeah, a way it's of not just bad. it's not really about the, just the, excuse the, to say hello. The to reason people. to sell the merch is if they take a thing home with them, they might remember that you like you and come back. It's actually about it's a sort of ritualized way of um, thanking people for coming, mm. and and I, I find it like funny in a way. It's a funny part of the show. Because a character on stage would never do that. Mm. He hates all the people. He thinks they're idiots for coming to see him <laughs> and they don't understand him. So it's extra funny then to run really fast to the thing yeah. so that you're there to go, thank you for coming to everyone. It's um, the same as being in a band because yeah. people think you're like some kind of intense maniac. Yeah, yeah. And after the gig, you're just sitting there having a cup of tea with them. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I really like that part of it uh, as well. I like the... Right. Again, um, when, about 20 years ago, I interviewed Marky Smith for a paper and... Um, Again, he may have done it on purpose to create an anecdote, but halfway through the interview, which was about ideas and Arthur Macken and H.P. Lovecraft, the then lineup of the band came in with receipts for their strings that they'd brought, and he got this envelope out and signed things off and counted all the money out in this really, like a bloke running Scrooge, a, yeah, like yeah. a bloke running a sort of plumber's van or something, and then they went off, and it was so mundane. I, I like the, I like. It stops you being pretentious if you think about it as um, as you're basically running a small business. Mm. I'm now running a quite successful small business. But if you think about that, and um, when Thurston... This sounds like name-droppy today, but because you're in the music, Thurston Moore's been in to see us, mm. and he, he always ends up talking to James, who does the lights and sound and driving and merch for me about the best way to display CDs and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's very, he said that they had a thing over on one of their tours over the merch desk which said merch and destroy, right? And he was saying, why don't you do that? And like, I like the fact that we try and keep the boxes topped up with books and think about, it sort of stops you, anything to stop you re realising that you're about to do something really mad, which is try and talk on your own to mm. 2,000 people. If you can go, oh, what do we need to put that CD on for sale for tonight to sort of make it mm. as if you're actually like a travelling shop? It's like <laughs> it's weird. You know, yeah. I know this process yeah. inside yeah, out. But I, yeah, but yeah. I did. Like, I've, I remember sort of being shocked and delighted 
and also confused when I was started going to, you know, to find the band afterwards, selling the stuff. And Mark Eitzel, who I don't know, but I talked to him once from American Music Club. I was buying some CDR off him after a show that he'd burned off himself. Mm. And he said he'd made more out of selling <laughs> 500 CDRs of this radio session than he did out of the album they did for Virgin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because he's selling it for a tenner. Yeah. And, and also he's got the personal touch. He's yeah. felt tipped his name on the I front. Know. See, here's merch tips. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I do, I, li I like that. It's also a good way of, um, as you approach 50, it means you're not immediately out and in a pub or something. You kind of have this mm. climb down with the people. Yeah. It's interesting seeing who comes as well, actually. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're uniformly really great apart from the person who waits to the end, who's always... The stalker. Got some agenda, and you can't yeah. work out what it is. Yeah. And, uh, but it's normally really good, yeah. Mm. So th this, and this thing about the, the comedy in it and the way you do it... Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not like Jimmy Carr, which is like 100 jokes in a row. Yeah, yeah. The deconstruction of it, and ostensibly, it's not... It's like Ted Chipperton, I said before. It's, yeah. not, it's not even funny, but it's funny. How does that work? I don't. Well, I don't. I don't even understand why I'm laughing. At the it thing is, partly funny because it shouldn't be. You shouldn't be doing it on stage, mm. but it's being presented as entertainment. Mm. I mean, that is why there's a bit in this tour where I talk about the exact economics of how much a DVD costs to buy from the warehouse, yeah. what you sell it for, and their audiences often start laughing at that. And I think precisely because the it idea is. that you would stand in an entertainment place and just work tediously through this, <laughs> this accountancy breakdown. It's funny, yeah. it's about context, you know. But it wouldn't be funny to do that mm. just in conversation with someone. And I know people call it riffing, but it really is riffing. Is well, it a bit like when Steve Hallen used to hit the yeah, foregroove for yeah. 10 minutes? I know, a lot, well, a lot of it starts like that. You know, yeah. a, lot of it's, a lot of things that seem fixed now started as me thinking, how long can you keep this going? And I'm, I'm now confused as to whether listening to The Fall and dub reggae and and free jazz and kraut rock and things made me do that, or mm. whether, in fact, I was doing it anyway, and then, and then I noticed that the, there is, and an, it's analogous in some way to, I think my favorite thing in, in music, I, li I like songs, and I like songwriters, and I like folk music, and I like a mm. lot of country rock, but I also really like those things, which Sonic Youth do really, it's, re it's repetition, but there's also improvisation in it mm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, especially if you have a sense of how it's going to end, right? Mm -hmm. And the pleasure is a deferred end, right? And you get this, and I've talked about this before, I know it sounds really wanky, but, you know, when you listen to the, the six, you know, like a John Coltrane, late John Coltrane record, where he's doing free jazz, but he's still playing My Favourite Things, mm -hmm. and he starts with the My Favourite Things riff, and you know that it's got to come back in at some point. But in the middle, he's like, Oh, well, times come apart. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. awful. <laughs> duck noises, and but it's, eventually it's going to be back to this music, musical standard. You know, and it's and beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. Fantastic. So you kind of yeah. that's if you. Uh, uh, I saw an interview with um, Frankie Boyle and Jimmy Carr where they were both. It was a really interesting thing where they were both talking through a third party about their writing structure. I think it was Frankie Boyle said that his thing was what they did was they tried to think over and over again of surprising ways to end sentences, right? Mm. And I thought, yeah, that is what you do. It goes, no, 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 and then there's a boom, you go, oh, I wasn't expecting that laugh, yeah, right? Yeah. Whereas I sometimes try to make what the end of the sentence will be obvious 10 minutes earlier mm. to get people to flip back on. I'm not saying it's better, it's just different. To get them to enjoy the process of the language and rhythms and things and find that funny. Mm. Mm. So they're not sitting there waiting, I wonder what the end's gonna be. They know. 
right? So you've taken that out of the equation, mm. and can you have fun with the thing? And it's like genre things, isn't it? In in music, you know, if you're nominally a genre, you can hide all sorts of other stuff in it mm. that people wouldn't even have thought they'd have liked, but they but they do. Taking yeah. people on the trip. Well, loads yeah. of people that have gone to see you wouldn't have gone to see. Um, an East European National State Choir. No, no. But then they suddenly find that you've, there's one there anyway. Yeah. So they've gone, oh. Yeah, well, it's know. a similar kind of thing. Yeah, Because yeah. you, you, yeah. you kind of do it to um, yeah. tease yourself, really, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's your own obsessions and things, mm. isn't it? So how, how much do you do is actually, is actually improvising? Well, less than it used to be. Yeah. Because I do longer tours. So, I mean, t 10, 10, 12 years ago, say the show 90s Comedian, there was, I did that maybe 40, 45 times. Mm -hmm. So lots of things were still in the process of they could chop and change and there were still options with them. Whereas this show, I will do this 200, 250 times, right? So what started to happen? After the first 100 times, the blocks where you build in opportunities for improvisation, instead of improvisations, they become sort of decision trees, really, about which one of these 10 options do I go to? And I have at the back of my mind, I know how I'm going to get back to the... Um, to the main mm. thrust after I've got out of the middle eight, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. you know, I sort Dog of know yeah. how I'm going to get back to it. So it's in a way, it's not, it's not as much as it was. Although for the fourth TV series that I did of Comedy Vehicle, I've managed to keep a lot of them unresolved by the time I got it to the telly, and a lot of the telly recordings reflected a genuine tension about whether mm. things were going to work or not, which I don't think a lot of people liked. Although to me. That's what I'd hoped to get to mm. at some point when they first said they'd do it. I wanted to capture what gigs are really like when you don't know if it's going to work or not. And I think a lot of people watching the fourth series thought that that had failed in some way because it was nerve-wracking. And but actually, that was sort of what I wanted to. Mm. I wanted to, to try and do that at some point to have the feeling of a of a gig where it could go either way. So what, what I have to do now a lot is try and sabotage myself a bit. So like you split your brain and... So even in the middle of a, a two or three minute piece, you try and you'll throw a curveball in. at yourself somehow. Or, actually so back to the four, but like the marksman turns the bass well, up yeah. off. Just yeah, to yeah. change it. Or something will happen in the room and you know that the best thing to do would be to ignore it, mm. right? It's not interesting or funny. And a bloke's just shouted something out you couldn't, no, no one could hear anyway. But you think that's a logical part of you thinking, no one even noticed that. Just mm. But then the the sort of mischief part of you thinking, well, actually do it, just talk to him and see what happens because it, it's sabotaged your thing, mm. which means that it, a live, real thing is happening. And I think increasingly what we have to do now that everything's online and everything's on Netflix is make a live event really worth it. You've got to do something that feels like mm. it actually happened. It, maybe it didn't really happen, but at least you gave the impression yeah. of it. You know, That's I mean, the showbiz part of it. I mean, yeah. I'll just say one thing like that, which is that, about 20 years ago, I saw the cramps. I only saw them once. I was really glad I saw them before they finished. Mm. But there was a bit where they did two nights in London. And there's a bit where Lux, as his name, wasn't it? He, went, he, yeah. went, he climbed up all the... It was in the middle of psychotic reaction and they put a big vamp in the middle. And he climbed up all these speaker stacks and he was then he doing stuff up there. And then he sort of fell off <laughs> about 10 foot. And he seemed to have twisted his leg up. And he sort of fell in some glass. And the others were like looking at him, like nervous. And he sort of crawled through all this glass and it was, and it was like, and the vamp was going on for ages because, and they were looking at each other like they didn't yeah. know yeah. if he was going to be all right. And then it, he just managed to get them like, he pulled himself, and he was all in just little pants, you know, yeah, looking really vulnerable. Yeah. Pulled himself up. 
and then he just comes in, bang, back into the verse, mm. you know, or the chorus, whatever it was. And everyone goes, yeah, because they've yeah. seen this amazing thing where he hurt himself, he managed to get up. I thought, oh, yeah. And they still good. got to the punchline. Yeah, yeah, but then, the ne- then a few days later, I was in a pub somewhere in central London, and I heard these people saying, oh, wasn't it amazing at the cramps when Lux fell off that thing and he just managed to get to the mic stand in time to mm. come in at the right place? And I went, oh, yeah, I was there. What night were you there? Thursday. <laughs> oh, no, I said on Wednesday. And I, but I wasn't annoyed. I thought, that's brilliant because he made it, it did feel something. like it was like, He made yeah. it feel like we've got our own little show. And right? in a sense, that's what you're doing. Yeah. Because it's, so, it feels improvised, yeah. but it's actually... Yeah. I mean, it started as... A lot, a lot of it is, mm. but some of the bits that aren't, I, I, I'm, I'm waiting for someone... I think if, as long as someone does something in the room that can trigger this, I can get into this bit. Mm. A thing that's never happened on this tour that I thought would. I've got this bit where I get, I say FKA, FKA Twigs, the pop mm. star, I go, yeah, he's like a rap singer. And I know it's a woman, FKA Twigs. Because <laughs> really early on, the first few times I did it, people go, it's a woman, FKA Twigs. <laughs> and then I go, I think we've moved beyond all that now, gender fascist, gender's fluid. Are you Adolf Hitler? And do all this stuff about how it didn't matter to me whether FKA Twigs was a man or a woman. What mattered was their talent and what's yeah. wrong with people. But it only happened about four, I thought it would happen every night. Yeah. I'd misread the, I thought the audience, someone would know who she was mm. and would say that every night. And there's loads of things in the other tours were, predicated on the fact that I got to the point where I even knew what the heckles would be. Mm. So I could get from that, the same heckles would happen every night. And I knew I could get from them into a bit, mm. but I was in trouble the one in 10 times it didn't happen. Because mm. then you had to sort of fake it. But if you can, you just got to do a thing that feels like it was. So is that, is that your ult- ultimate terror? Not, not forgetting what you're going to say, which yeah. I'm sure would be the worst thing yeah. to a lot of people, but actually people knowing what you're going to say. Yeah. Too much, you know. You know, the whole yeah. thing has a structure and it's set. And yeah, it's yeah. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't mind. It's partly why I let them see things written on my hands. I, I want them to. That, well, I want them to yeah. know there's a shape to it. Yeah, yeah. But although, what will happen at some point in this tour? There's a big set. The set is the punchline to a joke that's set up at the beginning of the night, mm-hmm. which we love. Yeah, actually, which you, yeah. Yeah. So there's an image that relates to a thing you're saying. But you'll still get people come up to you after and go, so what happens, you just go out and just make it all up? And you go, well, obviously you don't, because I've, I've bought this, like, massive 20-foot-high thing around the <laughs> yeah, not, yeah. It's not just sort of... It's obviously a plan in place. You know, yeah, you know, yeah. It's funny. I was always amazed at Henry Rollins, who's fantastic on stage, but he learns the whole thing. Who, three hours. Rollins, Henry oh, yeah. Rollins. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know, but he's a bit sort of like that, isn't he? You know, yeah, yeah, sort yeah. Of, yeah. He says he does it, and he does it to a wall. And yeah. He's flat every yeah. day. Well, yeah. I can't do that anymore. I can't learn things. It's, I've lost the ability to learn things. And what I really struggled with in this show is the end bit, where there's very precise language about jazz and folk, and I have to. It took me about a month to get that in, and that's why the things feel much looser now, because I have to write them conversationally, because I can't really learn big two hours of text. But mm. on the other hand, the knock-on effect of that has been it feels like more conversational mm. because I just can't. Yeah, and stuff. And again, so, you sort of see this with, I mean, I can't talk about the four, but because you, you know, that it's these. How he uses language now is much more impressionistic and fluid than it was thirty years ago. Mm. Probably because he's a bit more impressionistic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, some, sometimes they have these riffs, and the blocks of text can sort of land down anywhere, and they can extend them. And it might be a choice, or it might be a choice that's been a creative choice that's forced on him, just because. 
is not able to work with those amounts of words anymore that used to be in things. So they mm. have created a slightly different way of doing it. So sometimes a restriction can make you come up with a new good thing. You know? mm. and, and finally, just going back to the Brexit thing. Yeah. I mean, when you go to towns, not Manchester, not London, yeah. but I don't know if you do on this tour, you play a place like Sunderland. Yeah, Derby, you know. Um, so what kind of reaction do you get from a pro-Brexit audience? Well, okay, in, in, I was in Derby, which was like, Derbyshire, it's like mm. 65, 35 um, uh, leave, 70, mm. 30, something like that. I think that what tends to happen in a county that's found to voted of leave, normally the city mm. still voted remain. So for a start, it's different because you're in the city normally doing a gig, you're not in like a field mm. somewhere. Also, a, you know, a tragedy of Brexit that people get annoyed about, but unfortunately it's statistically true, is that there's an economic and education correlation mm. with which way people voted. So if you're educated above a certain level, you're more likely to have voted Remain. And if you have a certain amount of economic security, you're more likely to have voted Remain. People that have less, less access to information and have less of a stake in society because mm. they've not been able to uh, um, buy into it, they're more likely to have been more likely to vote Leave. And obviously that reflects who goes to things. You know, mm. people that have got 20 quid to go to the theatre in Derby, even if they're in a leave voting county, Will be they're more likely to remain, be. They're not yeah. always. Mm. And people come up to me afterwards and say, please sign this book to a leave voting cunt. Right? <laughs> what, what's nice is they're really funny about it. Right? Yeah, yeah. So in a place like that, I would just be more belligerent about mm. it. Mm. I, I might, instead of saying leave voting cunts, I might say, leave voting Derbyshire to come or something. <laughs> yeah. Like really, because actually what I found doing Glasgow, which used to frighten me, is the way to get them on side was actually to be specifically abusive about them from mm. the top. Then mm. they're kind of like, oh, hey, big man, you know, yeah. sort of like yeah, mutually yeah. assured yeah. destruction, you know. And then, and then, but then also in Derby, for example, I'd play up the idea that I've come to patronise them from the south of England mm. much more. You make yourself into a bit of a pantomime villain. So there's ways of mm. ways of making it work, you know, mm. more and more like, we are going, we won't understand because you probably don't have news here or anything, so you don't know what's going on. You know, I'd do that, I'd do that, so I'd make it, I'd go further with both ways. You know, what you can't do is if you if you try and, you might as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb, right? If you're gonna fail, you might as well really go yeah. to town on it, you know. But I've not had any, trouble anywhere I'm no not, because you know. I think when you're watching it it's very obvious even though it's quite acidic what you're doing yeah, and yeah. it's you know it's kind of and that very kind of grumpy persona yeah, yeah. there's actually a lot of empathy as well yeah, well everyone I, could tell it's like a front yeah. I mean I do wish we weren't leaving Europe mm -hmm. I feel absolutely distraught for all the people I know from other parts of Europe in all parts of society from professors to your babysitter who mm. whose lives are in chaos now I think it's terrible and, um, and I worry about how it will impact on the environment. I'm not, I'm not bothered about European law and economics. I'm worried about abstract ideas, you know, and people's, and, but, but, but that's not from a, that is, I think they can see, as long as that's genuine, they're not, mm. it's, not, it's not like I, what I don't do, which is what um, the UKIP types accuse alternative companies of doing, what I don't do is you know, demonised chavs or people on northern council estates for mm. vote. I, I don't do that, so it's not the same as that. Mm. You know, so um, it's uh, hopefully. I, I don't think people want. Also, also the other thing about laughter is it's involuntary. 
right? People do tend to laugh before they've made a value judgment about whether they agree with something or not, mm. right? So if the rhythm of a pro-remain joke is funny enough, and if it has a punchy enough end, and they, like, and they relate to the character that's saying it, they're gonna laugh before they've decided whether they agree with yeah. it or not, right? And that also works the other way, and I wish there were more of them. I wish there were more comedians who I, whose views I find abhorrent that also made me laugh, because mm. I would enjoy the experience of that. But there's only really Sadovitz, um, yeah. who's exceptional, because he manages to offend everyone in a room, <laughs> rather than... Um, is is that, that, but is that a quadruple bluff? <laughs> yeah, I, think, I don't know. I mean, I think he, he probably is horrible as well. I don't know, but whereas with others, I sort of think, yeah, but you know what? If only that racist joke were better constructed. <laughs> sort of like, it would actually be funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of... Um, I mean, Sadovitz has got some really funny racist jokes that he wrote himself that I wouldn't even... That it doesn't make sense for me to even say them because I'm not that mm -hmm. character that he is, mm. you know, but, and you can't, you'll be caught out by it before you've, before you've processed it. You know, it's not a voluntary thing. So, and I think the audience, the people that have vote, voted leave, they don't, they don't tend to come up to fight you afterwards. They tend to have a laugh with you about it or take the piss out of I you. I guess because they won as well, didn't they? Yeah, because they won, yeah, so they've got <laughs> yeah. to be magnanimous, haven't they, you know. Uh, but um, it's a fun time to do it, but it got to think, mm. what next, you know. Mm. Uh, so just to finish on, let's, can we just yeah. have a little celebration of the great Ted Chippington? Yeah, well, um, Ted was known to music fans really, wasn't he, in the mm. 80s? And he was the, f he was the f I'd seen some comedy live before I saw Ted. My mum took me to see the two Ronnies when I was about nine at mm. Coventry Belgrade well, Theatre. What about those kind of people, Morecambe Wise, two Ronnies? You know, the I family entertainers. Wise a lot. Yeah. I, I, but I mean, I think the problem with these guys is the writers don't get the credit they deserve. Because mm. that was Eddie Braben wrote all mm. the best stuff. And um, what's happened, what happened in the 80s and 90s was that alternative comedians were also the authors of their own. Mm. They, they were, you know, there were, it was like when bands started writing all their own songs, they were, whereas now people use writers again, so it's slightly different, but I do like the idea that you're seeing the person's whole view, you mm. know. Then the next thing I saw was Dexys with um, Peter Richardson opening for them from the mm. comic strip, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. He did this, and it was just as in between the first album and the second one, they were a sort of chart pop band then, and there were loads of families out, you know, and Peter Richardson did this really odd act where he was a, Mexican bandit complaining yeah, about, um, yeah. and, I, and I met his someone, I might even have met him, but I remember he, I said I'd seen this and it was brilliant. He only did it once, because he said it went down so badly that night, he never did it again, but he used all the material in the yeah, telly show, yeah. but I thought it was funny. Then I saw, and these were great shows that people have forgotten about, when Billy Bragg started out, and he used to tour these funny sort of reviews, you know, it'd be like him, the Sid Presley experience doing mm. Detroit-style proto-punk. The Frank Chickens would be on doing sort of mm. Japanese feminist Cabaret. performance art. And, yeah. then, and then Phil Jupitus when he was called Porky the Poet, mm. which was brilliant because that was like seeing, you know, a sort of... Well, there were all those guys, and like John Cooper Clark, Stephen Wells, mm. Stephen Wells, who's dead now, and sort of the stockbroker, and you'd hear him on records, but he didn't really... Was, mm. Phil was... And he was, he was doing sort of stuff that a 16-year-old would really, 15-year-old, 14-year-old really relate to about Trumpton, but what if they were all on drugs and, you know, it was sort of, it was really mm. great. And then I saw Ted Chippington opening for The Fall and that was the thing that 
sort of set me up for life, really. Because mm. I liked comedy and I liked writing and I wanted to write comedy or write generally, but I didn't think I could ever be a performer because I thought you had to be confident and move around and look like you were enjoying yourself and I wasn't <laughs> that sort of person. And then when I saw Ted, I realised you didn't have to be any of those things. <laughs> yeah. You didn't even have to have any stuff. <laughs> you just had to kind of occupy a space. Yeah. And sort of just see what happened. And half the fun of his stuff was what audiences made of it, mm. not the thing itself. Yeah, yeah. deliberate attention with the audience. Yeah, attention with the audience. I mean, I've never had that with anything before where I just went... Oh God! In a real road to Damascus thing, mm. you know, where half the audience were just bored and irritated, and the other people were just crying with laughter, and yeah, I really yeah. loved that about yeah. it. And um, and uh, the same night actually was another great thing, which was the very things that used to be the cravats, mm. and they had a similarly obtuse thing, which amused me, where they had a man who was just. <laughs> This he had a television. Yeah. It's just a bloke used to sit watching television, yeah, yeah. drinking, and the television was tuned to static. But he was staring at it for forty-five minutes. It must have really hurt his brain as well. And again, being fifteen and seeing that was like, oh, great! It was almost better than the music that a man stared at a television for forty-five minutes with his back to the audience, drinking as if he had no interest in all this stuff that was going around. But yeah, Ted was so funny, and then brilliantly that gig was released as a seven inch by Vindaloo Records. Mm. So the other amazing thing for me is I've got a single in which of the gig and I'm in the audience laughing at the thing that just changed mm. my life, which is sort of uh, like magic really that mm. I've got. It's uh, called Nonstop Party Hits of the 50s, 60s and 70s. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, he used to cover songs like... Yeah, the photos, yeah. the front is it's blurred photo. It's so... Everything about it is brilliant. And then the album came out, which is so counterintuitive. It's got... Um, which, again, I absolutely tried to copy for the telly, and they wouldn't let me. Um, and, but I managed to do it by the end of the fourth series. But was about half the gigs on it on the album Man in a Suitcase or of him going down quite badly. Mm. But because you think the material's funny, you sort of find yourself laughing at the audience. Even more. Yeah, yeah even yeah. more. And I thought, what is May? I'd never seen that before, that he was basically, I don't know if, if he knew what he was doing, but he'd separated the idea that the material had value out from how it was being um, re received. Mm. And it was kind of, well, he must think it's good. But it's going down badly, objectively. <laughs> it was really funny. And for the first, when I went in with the proposal for the first series of Comedy Vehicle, my initial plan was that I wanted to film the same set twice, once in front of an audience of comedy fans in Metropolitan Elite London, and once on a cross-channel ferry or in a transport cafe or just in a shopping centre where passers-by would not mm. really like it or actively dislike it, and then cut between them so that you'd see something even halfway through a sentence, the same joke would go from loads of people laughing to people hating it. I thought that would be an interesting thing to do. Well, they didn't go with that. But then by the end of the fourth series, I'd sort of managed to kind of do that just in one room, make it not always work, even though it could have done. But the test was absolutely brilliant. And then when I went to college, I met a couple of other people that liked him, you know, and, and uh, we all started trying to do the comedy stuff together. And... Uh, uh, I mean, there's only really half an hour of his stuff because it's the same stuff r recorded going down differently. But within that, 
is sort of everything you need to know, really. Mm. And so, obviously, he never, he never was a writer. Like, I have routines. I try to write shows of two hours that have got some shape to them. I've, he's not, wasn't really about that, Ted. But what is the core of it is the apparent indifference to audience response. Yeah. yeah. Is, <laughs> you know, and the other yeah. thing is that when people are heckling him, he doesn't try to get the better of them. He treats it as if it were a genuine inquiry oh, yeah. and they haven't understood what he's doing, right? And that, that t throws the tables and slows the whole thing down. Yeah. So it's not about quick-fire banter. It becomes a really interminable thing. And that's what I always do when there's stuff happening. I never try and do, like, a quick deal with it quickly. Mm. I think, right, let's... And actually, let's see how bad this can get. And re recently, I've now, I now wear hearing aids. I'm a bit deaf when I do gigs. So I can get them out and say I've got to reset them to hear where the bloke is and <laughs> takes ages and, you know, that's really from Ted. But, I mean, again, you might have got to that. It's obviously in you, isn't it? I mean, it's not, it's not so much that you see something and you copy it. As you see something and you realise that the things that are in you, your attitudes, mm. can exist. It opens like, the door. Yeah, I mean, yeah. John Cooper Clark was here last night. This has been awful. I've never had an interview like this before. I go, yes, and then I was talking to... <laughs> John Cooper Clark, it's like some awful <laughs> actors. Anyway, he said he's always trying to do things with Pam Ayres, right? And no one will let him, because they think he's taking the piss. But he isn't. He said he saw Pam Ayres on telly as a kid, a young man, mm. and he thought, oh, you can be a poet. Because he thought poets had, like, velvet cloaks and lived yeah. in garrets yeah. in the 18th century. And then he saw a funny poet on telly, and he loves Pam Ayres, because she took poetry to the people, and it doesn't mm. square up in the average person's mind. You wouldn't think John Cooper Clark and Pam Ayres are of a piece, but they are, and John Cooper Clark looked at Pam Ayres in the same way as I looked at Ted Chippington and thought, you don't have to be that, mm. but it does mean you don't have to be all the other things. You mm. can be this mm. other thing that seems... A poet's not supposed to be a middle-aged woman with a Gloucestershire accent <laughs> talking about her teeth. She was great, though. But it can you? be. Yeah. You know what? She was mm. brilliant. I mean, I suspect she's probably quite a conservative sort of woman, but... She was doing pr pr proper, but they're funny, right? But they've got good shapes to them and mm. really good rhymes. And, and even the accent is great. Yeah. Which was, was probably it's a big deal. Big for Cooper Clark at the time. Accents. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of since talking to him last night. I'm now thinking, how do you engineer that? How can you get them in a show together? I sort of feel like <laughs> my next project is going to be some John Cooper Clark, yeah, Pam Ayres thing. But they would actually work really well together. Mm. Because there's much more in common than they mm. than divides them, you know. So. Great, thanks, Stuart. Is that all right? Yes, yeah, very amazing. much. Brilliant. Nice yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Yeah. You've been listening to the John Rob tapes with me, John Rob, brought to you by Lush and Louder Than War, and produced by Sophie Porter. If you enjoyed it. Please subscribe and share. Thanks for listening.